This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Didn't change anything. Good. Hi, everyone. My name's Michelle. Um, I am here to talk about some PhD research that I'm doing at the moment. But first, to introduce myself properly. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney, in interaction design. Um, and I'm also a user research lead at the Digital Transformation Agency. So my PhD is looking at stroke patient rehabilitation and how we may be able to design interactive feedback to give patients feedback on their limb movements as they go through their rehabilitation. Now, this talk very much touches on my um, PhD research, but doesn't go to, into it in any detail. Um, so if you are interested in learning more about it, come and find me in the break. Um, but as you can imagine, as a result of, of doing um, research with stroke patients, I spend a lot of time doing research in a hospital environment, which is what I'm going to talk about today. So why did I want to do this, you might ask? Well, in my undergraduate degree, I'd gone out into a hospital setting a number of times and I'd identified how much we can use our tool set as a group of designers and researchers um, to help in this particular setting. As Ash Donaldson mentioned in his talk yesterday, there are so many different things that we can be doing in this particular space. You've got your doctors and your therapists that are uh, completely time poor and in many cases very fatigued who are doing their best to help as many patients as they possibly can. You've got your physiotherapists who are often working with one therapist and to multiple patients at any one time just trying to get across giving them all feedback on their limb movements at, um, as, they can, as much as they can. And you've also got your patients who were expecting to heal in this very clinical environment of four white walls um, and they're constantly just trying to get a bit of time from their time poor doctors and nurses that are um, around in the ward environments. So this is definitely somewhere that we can help. So what I'm going to do today is give you some of those tools so that you can all do research in hospitals too. Um, so there are going to be three main areas that I talk about today. Um, firstly, gaining ethics approval to be able to conduct research in a hospital environment. Secondly, actually talking with patients and getting access to, to speak with patients. And finally, actually conducting the research. So imagine this. I'm this fresh-faced PhD student. I'm so excited to get into the hospital, as you've probably worked out. And... I write to my research academic officer and go, hey, Anne, I'm really excited to get into the hospital. I can't wait to start talking to patients. And I get this email back. It's literally in caps locks saying, you must not enter the hospital without ethics approval. I was there freaking out, literally quivering my boots. I'm three weeks into a PhD and I already put her offside, which is not a good way to start. Um, so I thought to myself, well, I better start learning a little bit more about what this ethics approval thing is. So I found out it, that it's this pretty full-on three-stage process. Well, it seems full-on at the time. Um, it consists of your national ethics application form, then your single-side application, and for me, being a UTS student, I then had to go through ratification with the university as well. 
So your national ethics application form is really so that you can um, be able to conduct research in any hospital around Australia. You're then doing your single site application, which is essentially your bridge between that national um, application and the actual hospital that you're conducting your research with. And so your local health district, so Australia is made up of a whole heap of local health districts in each state, which then govern that single site ap approval process. So I sat down at my computer, I logged on to ethics ethicsforms.org and I started my national ethics application form which was 60 pages long. I realised how long it was actually going to take me to get through this particular form. Now it was a fairly standard ethics application form. I'm sure lots of you have done those kinds of things in the past. So there were lots of short form questions, long form questions, writing protocols, writing consent forms and then of course getting signatures of all the researchers um, that would be going in to do research in the hospital environment. You then submit that off and it was what was going to come next that I have to say I didn't realise was going to be quite a process. So the next thing was a, a lot of back and forth um, as the ethics office was asking me questions about the different things um, that I had proposed in my application form. Now at the time it was 2013, so yes, I have been doing this PhD for a very long time. Um, and so it was a lot of communicating via snail mail. Um, what I found was really interesting was that the things that trumped us most were terms like interaction design and prototypes, where there just wasn't any common language there around how we talk about these kinds of things. Now, you can imagine it. I'm coming from a design research kind of space. I'd studied interaction design. This was kind of everything that I knew from a terminology perspective. And then you had the ethics office, who were really coming from a, a medical device and pharmaceutical clinical trial testing kind of perspective, which is a very, very different thing to the kind of stuff area that I was playing in. So after about four or five back and forth um, letters and then finally a call where they just said, okay, let's nut this out. What does it mean? What is a prototype? What are you trying to do? Um, I finally received ethics approval and I was very excited. Um, so what was next was my single site application. So stage number two. Now this was a relatively simple application form. It was about 15 pages long. The only one hiccup at this stage was the fact that I needed to get support from the head of occupational therapy, the head of physiotherapy and the head of aged care. Now so these people are some of the busiest people in the entire hospital. So getting access to them and getting meetings with them is not an easy thing by any means. I was lucky I had a physiotherapist that I was working closely with with this process that was working at the Bankstown Hospital that I was um, hoping to do my research with and he was able to take me through the process a little bit. Um, but he pretty much said they will sit you down, they will grill you, you need to be able to answer all of their questions um, and then they should, if, if hopefully, um, give you approval to do it. Now, I was really lucky that the head of occupational therapy and head of physiotherapy were really good friends. So they got together, set up a meeting with me, asked all their questions, and were happy to sign it off. The head of aged care was a little bit different. I was really lucky to get in in between two meetings. He sat me down, and I got that grilling that the physiotherapist had told me about. Now, as you can understand, he doesn't have time to read through all of those different ethics forms um, that come in to him 
on probably a weekly or monthly basis. So he was just wanting to get across everything, wanting to understand how much time I was um, wanting to sort of use of, of the physiotherapist and occupational therapist. Um, and once he realised that it was really a patient focus that I, I had, um, he was happy to sign off as well. So then finally, I got my acceptance, um, went through the University Ethics Board, which was a super quick process in comparison, um, and I was ready to go. A couple of months in to my data collection, I decided that I wanted to make a bit of a change to, uh, to my application. And I wanted to talk to physiotherapists, so I could do a little bit more of a triangulation of the, of the data I was collecting. This meant when going through that entire process again, so starting with the national body, then um, the local health district, and going through the university. Um, so again, a slightly time-consuming process that took a couple of months. So a couple of tips for when you may be going through a process like this. You want to leave a minimum of three months. Now, I feel bad saying this because it actually it took me 12 months all up, but if you've got a bit of this background knowledge, it can definitely be, happen a lot faster. Um, make sure that you're really um, using the simplest language that you possibly can when writing these um, ethics application documents. Um, and that way you'll be able to sort of... to to make sure that it's as simple as possible for anyone to be able to understand what you're trying to do. Leave at least two months um, for any amendments that you're wanting to make and make those connections with relevant management in the hospital as early as you possibly can so they're aware of what you're going to be doing, the impact it's going to have on the hospital and also how it will benefit the hospital as well. So, I was thinking to myself when I was writing this, this sounds like it's coming from a very academic background. And how can I make this more relevant for most of the people sitting in the room who probably work in industry? Um, so I had a look up on the NHMRC, which is the National Health and Medical Research Council guidelines, um, to get a better understanding of, of who they believe needs to go through an ethics approval process. And so they say that research with more than a low level of risk must be reviewed by a human research ethics committee and research involving no more than a low level of risk um, be reviewed under other processes. Now, this whole low level of risk thing um, isn't really all that clear. So I got a definition. So research is low risk where the only foreseeable risk is one of discomfort. Where that risk, even if unlikely, is more serious than discomfort, the research is not low risk. Now, I also don't think that that is particularly clear um, as to who needs to get ethics approval and who doesn't. So what I would recommend for anyone who's looking to do research in a hospital environment is your local health districts for each of the hospitals that, that you may do research with are always more than happy to, uh, to have a chat with you. Their ethics officers are more than happy to have a chat with you about any research that you're looking at doing. So what I usually do now is I just give them a call to understand whether a study that I'm looking at doing is low risk um, or it's, it's deemed as greater than low risk. So now, accessing the hospital environment. So I was so excited. I had my ethics approval. I was ready to go. And I got all the documentation that I needed to fill out to actually access the hospital environment. Now, the way that it's sort of it's set up is that um, even as a researcher, even though you're not an employee of the hospital, you need to go through all the same checks and balances um, to ensure that, that you're 
able to work in a hospital environment. So there were police checks, there were a whole heap of different forms, I filled them all out, and then I came across the vaccination record card. Now, the vaccination record card is essentially a document that your, um, your doctor is able to sign off that you've had a whole heap of different vaccinations, um, which then allow you to go and work in a hospital environment. Now, I hadn't had a lot of these, and one of the big ones um, were ones like hepatitis B, where you get a vaccination on day one, on day 14, and on day 28. So this meant another month before I was able to go in and access the hospital environment. Finally gotten through those um, vaccinations, and it was time for induction day. Now, I didn't realise that induction was actually a half day of um, a full-on, like, tours of the hospital, meeting with HR, getting your pass done, um, all those things. So I was there ready, literally thinking, minute one, I'm going to be there talking to patients, um, asking them all about their rehabilitation experiences. Um, but... Unfortunately, there was still yet another half day before I, uh, before I got to start completing research. So a couple of little tips around this, especially the vaccination record card. It feels like you're taking sort of one step forward and a, well, quite a number of steps back when you, uh, you realise that there are all these different hoops that you still need to jump through, even though you have your ethics approval. And finally, to interviewing patients. So... I'd entered the hospital and I was finding that there was there were some patients who were interested in, in being a part of my research, um, but there were also some patients that were sort of saying, oh, I'm really sorry, someone came and talked to me yesterday or someone came and talked to me a week ago um, because they also were running a study and I've just got too much going on at the moment. So one really big thing in a lot of Sydney hospitals where there's quite a lot of research going on at any one time is research fatigue um, for patients. And it's just that there's a whole range of different studies going on and all those studies have that same participant base. The other thing that's really important to understand with other studies that are going on um, is the fact that all those studies are often interventions of their own. And so the way that the things that they may be asking of different patients may then affect the results that you get as a part of your research. The other thing that's really important to do is understand the patient situation. So for me, that means once a patient said that they're happy to be a part of my research, running over to where their bed is and just checking on the whiteboard behind their bed as to what um, their different sort of conditions are. So for me, for stroke patient rehabilitation, things that I need to keep be aware of is things like how many people does it take to move a particular patient from, say, the physiotherapy gym to back to their room? Now, these kinds of things are just really good things to be aware of as a researcher because it means that when your patient has finished um, with your particular session for the day, um, that you know exactly how many people you need to grab or whether you need a crane or a wheelchair um, to again then get the physios to move the patient back to where they need to be. Five minutes. Um, and the other thing that's really important is a lot of patients that are, I'm doing research with are nil by mouth, which means that their swallowing mechanism isn't available to them anymore since their stroke. Now, most of the time if a patient's in their room or um, 
somewhere where it's sort of available to the tea lady that they are nil by mouth, she won't offer them tea. However, there are some very cheeky patients that I've come across where they will actually sit there knowing that they're in a research session with me, knowing that maybe I don't know that they're nil by mouth, and they'll go, yeah, I'd love a cup of tea. No one will give me a cup of tea in this joint. Um, and so, therefore, ask for a cup of tea. Now, this can put you in a fairly awkward position. It would never be your fault um, if someone were to start choking or something like that, but um, it does put you in a very awkward position as a researcher. One final thing that it's really important to, um, to understand is understand your limits as a researcher as well. Now, I've been asked so many times to help a patient back to their room, to do rehab with a patient, such as throwing and catching a ball with them. Um, all things that I just need to think back to, um, what am I allowed to do ethically? What does my protocol allow me to do? And also, what am I personally okay with doing? And that way, if you're able to communicate those kinds of things back to the physiotherapist um, and be confident in, in yourself in, um, in what you're comfortable and not comfortable doing, um, it really helps as then you can sort of have a shared knowledge together with the physiotherapist of what they can and, well, what they can't and maybe can ask you to do. So a couple of important things um, for when you're actually conducting research. So acknowledge any other research going on in the hospital. Um, understand the patient's situation um, and also communicate your boundaries as a researcher with the hospital staff. So I've been conducting my PhD for about six years now and most ethics approval lasts for around four to five years. So I've been lucky enough to do it twice. So I can give you a great comparison on, uh, on first time versus second time. And actually the fact that it isn't the crazy process that I made it out to be the first time. So the second time that I do, did it, um, I got through it in an approximately three months. So it shows you that it really isn't the sort of crazy process um, that I made it out to be. It was just that it was a massive learning process in learning how to get my head around um, this this big new thing. Um, the only thing that's changed slightly from 2013 is it's no longer the NEAF form, it's the Human Research Ethics Application form, but otherwise it's exactly the same process. The one thing that I did find was really exciting though was the fact that there was definitely much more of a shared language there between the ethics office and the kinds of research that we were doing, which makes me think that there are lots more people who are doing this kind of research and getting ethics approval to do it. So why should we conduct research in hospital environments? Why should we go through these different barriers um, to do the amazing research and use our, our tool sets um, to do really great stuff in a hospital environment? Well, as I mentioned earlier, and as, as Ash Donaldson mentioned yesterday, there is so much that we can be doing. Um, we need to be helping patients who are being expected to heal in, in four clinical white walls and who are constantly needing to get access to support. We need to help those nurses and doctors who are so overtired and who are in systems that really don't support them to do what they do. And the one thing that really drives it home for me is the fact that every one of us will most likely be in hospital at some point and touch wood we're not, but if it's not us then it will definitely be someone that we love. So why not take now as an opportunity for us to redesign some of these systems to make it a better place for everyone to heal? Thank you. And any questions? I don't know if we have time. Do we have time? We don't have time. Ask me over 
lunch. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.